Welcome to the latest edition of the Pivotal Voices podcast on my Substack. I'm Steve Goldstein. For many years on the radio, I had the pleasure of talking with people who were involved with the National Geographic Live Speaker Series. They went to lots of places around the country, but whenever they would come to the Valley, I'd get a chance to converse with them about the adventures they had done, the things they had seen. We're talking about photographers and explorers and overall adventurers. It's always one of my favorite things to do. And now, after a little bit of a break, I'm picking that up again today with Doug Smith, who's going to talk about the wolves of Yellowstone and how he brought those wolves back to the park starting in the 1990s. He's been involved since the very beginning, and he'll be coming to the Mesa Arts Center on February 21st. That's Wednesday night at 7.30. It was a great conversation. He's a great storyteller. Here's that chat with Doug Smith. If you were to explain to a novice why it was so important to bring wolves back to the ecosystem of Yellowstone, what would your answer be? Well, national parks, the idea is to protect and preserve natural systems. Yet Yellowstone National Park, established 1872, eliminated wolves. I mean, killed them off. Yeah. The last wolf was gone by 1926. So how does that live up to the mission of the National Park Service? which stated briefly is, is preservation. So it's, it's really not a natural system. It's really not a complete ecosystem unless you have the top predator. And this is the mother park. So it was incomplete. There was a hole and we had to bring wolves back. And Yellowstone, despite it being large, despite it being the world's first park, is a little bit like an island. And so it would be hard for wolves to get there. So we helped. So we caught them in Canada and we let them go 30 years ago in Yellowstone and they've taken and they've changed the park for the better. That's why we did it. So do wolves have some sort of unearned reputation, the predatory aspects of the animal? Is there a reason that that people have been so negative that there's been a negativity attached to wolves for years before the past couple of decades? For sure. I mean, I would argue wolves have tons of baggage. Most people have an opinion about wolves before they know anything about wolves. And that's due to the mythology. Things like Three Little Pigs, Little Red Riding Hood, uh, Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, Wolf at the Door. All those things seep into your psyche before you even know anything about wolves. And secondly, wolves have been considered the antithesis of civilization. When Europeans colonized North America, one of their main goals was getting rid of wolves to make way for people because that's what they did in Europe. So wolves have had a bad rap since the beginning and they can't shake it. Now, it is true. More people are are supporting them than ever before, but that's only in the last two to three decades. Prior to that, for hundreds of years, wolves were considered the spawn of Satan evil killing them was the only answer and they have a very hard time shaking that image because you know quite frankly steve they they still kill to make a living now so do we but we blame them for all the bad things about that so if there's anything my career has pointed out to me it's this is not typical wildlife management wolves kind of stand above in a special cultural place really in all societies, everywhere they occur. And I cannot overstate that. So three decades ago, you weren't just taking on a challenge. You were taking on one of the ultimate challenges for someone in your field. 
Oh, I mean, I had people come up to me and tell me my grandfather killed wolves. Are you telling me my grandfather was wrong? <laughs> you know, because the last wolves were killed off in Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho in the 1930s. So literally ranchers said that to me. So this is people's value system. This is people's family histories. And, 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 and for Arizona, this is very important. Mm -hmm. You can win elections being anti-government. And this is the government bringing in, you know, the devil dog. I mean, this was as combustible a wildlife project as you'll find. Well, so take us back three decades or so as we come bring it back to present. How long did it take to see the signs of success? How long did it take for you to see the real signs of progress when you brought the wolves in from Canada? Well, things went better than we thought. The original design was to reintroduce wolves for a three to five year period, and we reintroduced them for three, the low end of that scale. And the third year was really kind of extra. We only went to Canada where the wolves came from two years, 95 and 96. And we thought the wolves were going to leave the park uh, more than they did. And we thought more wolves would be shot and killed than occurred. And so both of those things didn't happen. And so the wolves stayed and survived better than expected. And so they really took. So like by the late 1990s and early 2000s, the, the population was really on its way to recovering throughout the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Right now, the park's got about 115 wolves and 11 packs. The ecosystem around probably 350 to 400 wolves all from that original reintroduction about 30 years ago. And so that really attests to the resilience of wolves and, and really says, give, just give them half a chance and they'll do the rest. And so this is really, it speaks well to their biology and ecology and really what we did to them because they're resilient and, and, you know, we really did them in and, uh, just did a little to get them back and now they're thriving really in the northern rockies and as you know uh, arizona and new mexico is the site of mexican wolf recovery gotta say that coming into mexico or excuse me arizona uh, i was part of the mexican wolf recovery team until it was disbanded and so a similar project is ongoing in your state it's the rarest subspecies by the way of gray wolves in north america uh, Mexican wolves, Canis lupus bailei, and that project's ongoing uh, right there in your home state. So other than the massive thing we talked about, the reputation that wolves have um, in reality and folklore, were there other pitfalls? It almost sounds like there weren't, considering how quickly you were able to to develop this at the, the three years instead of up to five years. But were there any pitfalls that you anticipated that didn't happen, that did happen, but you were able to overcome them pretty early? Well, I mean, it's the age-old thing. Uh, the three reasons you don't like wolves is they kill livestock occasionally, very rarely, but they do do it, and that's always a problem. It makes headlines every single time. You know, the things that they are supposed to eat in this region um, and, and in Arizona, New Mexico as well, deer and elk, and those are prized game species across the Western United States. And what is the impact of that? And then third, some people perceive this is overblown and, and largely misinformation that, that wolves are a human safety threat. 
And for sure, those first two have reared their ugly heads. They always do. Every place will show up. But livestock killing has been uh, very low and, and handled well by the state game departments. The offending wolves are usually killed. And uh, both, all three states, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, have more elk now than they did when we reintroduced wolves. So the fears that accompanied wolf reduction really have not played out. The big one that's that's difficult, and again, it's a it's a crucible of you know our culture and our society and our values, and it reflects the polarization that is everywhere in America now. Is you know should wolves be hunted? And you know you, there is a significant number of people who like wolves now, but as many, if not slightly more, people who don't like them. And so this idea to have wolves, you have to kill them to buy social tolerance or acceptance by rural people, because rural people claim we got to live with them. The city people don't have to. And in general, rural people are less supportive of wolves than our urban people. And, and that has developed to be a little bit of a, a very intractable debate. And we're all three states in the Northern Rockies have landed is, you know, pretty aggressive hunting. <laughs> You know, 88% of Wyoming wolves are considered a predator, can be shot on sight any time of the year. And Idaho and Montana have very, very liberal bag limits and and seasons and very few restrictions on killing wolves. And they would counter that's what it takes to keep the populations from becoming too many. And so that's an ongoing debate. A lot of other people who like wolves say this is not professional scientific wildlife management you know, because they're doing things like allowing snaring and night hunting with spotlights and, and baiting. Uh, Idaho has areas where it's almost year round hunting. Uh, so so that was a little bit unforeseen because I worked with wolves prior to coming to the West in the lake states and Canada and Alaska. And, you know, wolf hunting was just part of the, kind of the social fabric of living in those places uh, and and this has turned into a very uh, big debate here now. Uh, how how do we have them and how do we live with them? Do you think that because there is consternation on both sides, you know, we always talk about well, if if uh, both sides, if there are two sides in an argument, don't like what the person in the middle has decided, that's a good sign because you want to make sure that not everyone is fully satisfied. But there's kind of a balance found there. Are the things you talked about there impeding the paths to more progress? Are you concerned there might be a regression when it comes to some of this? I mean, that's a tough question because this reflects our our society today. I mean, I started off as a wolf lover. I won't lie. I've been interested in wolves since I was a small boy. You know, I, I mean, like 12, 13, 14. I started writing wolf biologists at age 15, and now I'm 63, and I'm still involved with wolves. And <laughs> You know, but through that evolution, I've become very moderate. I live in the middle. Um, I I think the only way forward is compromise. And so a lot of people throughout my career have looked to me to be a voice for wolves. And they have gotten very angry at me for saying, you know, controlling problem wolves and allowing limited harvest is necessary to for wolf recovery, for wolf conservation and that doesn't mean i don't believe there's places wolves should be left alone i actually think that's a missing piece of the puzzle we need some areas where they are left alone but 
when they're living on a human dominated landscape, they're going to need management, which involves dealing with problem wolves and some form of harvest. That's firmly in the middle. Uh, some days it's hard for me because I think a lot of nature is on the run nowadays uh, and on the decline. So I would like to be more of a preservationist or a protectionist, but we don't live in a society where you can do that now. And, you know, quite frankly, we're running out of room. You know, human population is growing. Now I realize the birth rate's near zero in the U.S., but it's still growing due to other reasons. And so wolves need room, and so do we. So where's the compromise? And so I'm really trying to be reasonable in that regard. Uh, places that where wolves can still be left alone, I think we need to identify those places and advocate for their protection. So it, it's a tough question, Steve. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, Doug, I had two more questions for you. And, and one perhaps comes out of the answer you just gave. And that is, I know that I mean, if you've been passionate about wolves for 50 years, you were a, a leader and directly involved in these projects for decades when it comes to specifically the wolves in Yellowstone. And then you went to Mexican gray wolves. But I understand just you know doing the token Google search that you are semi-retired. So if I can ask it this way, clearly it's in your blood, but how does it feel to not be dealing with these things on an everyday basis? Wow, Steve, that's uh, I've been interviewed a lot. And I have to say, as the first time I got that question, well, I've only been retired a year, so it hasn't right. been a lot of time, but <laughs> right. it, that is a tough one. It's been extraordinarily difficult. I retired with, with energy and gas in the tank, um, and I question that every day. Uh, some of that was due to life reasons for uh, at, at least three decades um, and probably longer. My life revolved around wolves. And that that took a toll. There was stress. There were other aspects of life that I was neglecting. Mm -hmm. But to a degree, wolves were my identity. I mean, this last year is the first time in 44 years I haven't had my finger on the button in terms of doing active field work with wolves. I've I've caught over 600 wolves in my career. Wow. And I have not handled one in this last year. And, and that's been a notable absence in my life. And I'm still struggling with it. Wondering if that was the right decision. So I don't know, but I did it and I am moving in. My life is still really wolfy uh -huh. uh, as a, as evidenced by the Snatchio Live yeah. uh, speaking uh, gigs I have, uh, writing quite a bit about wolves. Uh, working probably on a couple books, uh, not signed off on those contracts yet, but they're in the works. So, uh, and I'm still working with different groups on, you know, management policy towards wolves. And in a lot of ways, that's been enjoyable because I don't want to say too much about this. When I worked for the federal government, I was owned by the federal government. <laughs> they literally owned me. It, it, to do an interview like this, I would have had to get permission out of Washington, D.C. And so it has been nice to be my own person and to be able to speak out a little bit more in some ways that I was not able to on behalf of wolves before. So I think that's a good thing. But, you know, looking a wolf in the eye several times a year, uh, it's hard to give up. Yeah, I, boy, I imagine so. Um, Doug, let me close with a, a softer question, though, that um, the photograph that's part of the Mesa Art Center ad for your event 
includes these two wolves and they are incredibly striking. And even though, as we talked about the, the fear around wolves or people hunting them or whatever it may be, I was just so struck by how beautiful this photo was and how beautiful the animals were. Uh, how does that fit into how you would describe them? I mean, wolves are the wild to find. Uh, they, they can live next to people, but they do best in the wilderness, away from people. And that look that you're referring to is the quintessential look of wildness. It's also a look that we can't own. Uh, wolves will never be fully possessed by people. You know, there's a lot of wildlife that lives at our pleasure. Wolves are not that. They will always be themselves, wild. And I think that look is the, you know, it's almost the definition of the environmental movement. This is a creature that defies our takeover of the planet. And we need to come to grips with what we're doing. And wolves are that reminder that this is an animal that represents life apart from humanity. Are we just going to roll over it all, wolves included, or are we going to make a place for all forms of life? And wolves present the biggest challenge. And every time I see that look, whether it's a photograph or a real wolf, it's, it takes you away to the true wild. Doug Smith, his presentation is called Wild Wolves of Yellowstone. It'll be part of the National Geographic Live Speaker Series at the Mesa Arts Center that's coming up on Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Doug, I cannot overstate how much fun that was and how amazing that conversation was. Thanks so much. You bet, Steve. Hopefully it fit your needs. Thanks again to Doug Smith for a fun, interesting conversation about how he brought the wolves back to Yellowstone. And that's all for this edition of the Pivotal Voices podcast, music provided by Epidemic Sound. I'm Steve Goldstein. Thanks for listening.